This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Thursday, November 2nd. On the pod today, does the threat of Hamas justify making hospitals military targets? We'll ask the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross and press him on the ongoing talks to release hostages held by Hamas. Plus, we speak to an Ottawa woman who has lost dozens of family members in Gaza since the start of this war. And a senator and longtime liberal is calling for the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to step aside as liberal leader. We'll ask him why. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to the Middle East, his second trip there since the war started. His visit coincides with growing outcry over the humanitarian toll this war is taking on civilians. The CBC's Susan Ormiston is in Jerusalem. So, Susan, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave an update today on military operations. Where do they stand? Well, this afternoon we heard from the Prime Minister and he said that the Israeli military had pushed past the outskirts of Gaza City, that big urban center of Gaza where it believes Hamas has coordinated and operates its command and control there. This Later today in the evening, uh, we heard from a military spokesperson in a regular briefing. He went beyond that. He said that the Israeli troops have encircled, those were his words, encircled Gaza City, meaning that they were trying to prevent anybody getting out of northern Gaza. And Hamas also said today that they had, that the Israeli forces had severed the roads going from north to south. This, of course, has been a long um, battle to this point in that the Israelis have told the people in northern Gaza, the civilians, to move south. Many, many have, but many have not. And it appears that there may be an attempt to create a siege around Gaza City. So the battle is getting into another um, level of intensity, David. Uh, The Prime Minister was talking about it being at the height of battle right now. We're also continuing to see airstrikes in that refugee camp, Jabalia refugee camp in just north of Gaza City, uh, one strike, according to Hamas, hit a schoolyard, which was being used to uh, refuge as a refuge for people who were displaced from their homes. There's casualties there, and of course, still rever- reverberations from the two big airstrikes on Jabalia camp on Monday and Tuesday. So, Susan, on the diplomatic front, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he's on his way there. How is this trip different than his first? Well, the circumstances have changed dramatically. Uh, Last time the Secretary of State was here, there wasn't a ground incursion. So since uh, he is coming back into a completely different war environment, uh, it's absolutely clear that Israeli defense forces are now in Gaza for what the Prime Minister calls a long, protracted, difficult war. And the humanitarian crisis has uh, worsened dramatically since uh, Antony Blinken was here the last time. Hamas is reporting over 9,000 deaths, over 3,700 of them children under the age of 18. And of course, the 242 hostages or missing persons are still captive inside Gaza. So when the Secretary of State lands here tomorrow, he will be speaking, it's believed, to the Prime Minister on all those topics. 
Um, there is messaging out of the United States already that it would like to see a humanitarian pause in order to get more humanitarian aid into southern Gaza to relieve the stress and trauma there and also to perhaps allow a pathway for those hostages to get out, some of them. We're not aware of any deal or any being any closer to a deal on those hostages, complicated negotiations. And then Secretary of State Blinken has one more difficult um, task, and that is to continue to try to prevent this war from escalating, David. Tomorrow, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah in, Le in Lebanon, is scheduled to speak for the first time about this war. And many people are watching those remarks to see if it signals that the war will get worse with Lebanon, with Hezbollah, or what, in fact, will come from from that speech. So Secretary of State Blinken is continuing his trip around the region, hoping to try to prevent an escalation of this war that's been a primary part of his diplomacy over the last three weeks. Okay, Susan, thank you very much. That's the CBC's Susan Ormiston in Jerusalem. Hundreds of foreign nationals have begun to cross from Gaza into Egypt. The Rafah border crossing opened yesterday to limited evacuations. But to this point, Canadians trapped in Gaza are still waiting. The CBC's Olivia Stefanovic has been looking into this for us. So, Olivia, what can you tell us about the status of these Canadians desperate to get out? Well, David, so far only one Canadian has been able to leave the Gaza Strip, and this actually came as a surprise to the federal government. We've learned that this Canadian worked for an international organization and was actually not on the list with Global Affairs Canada. So they weren't registered with Global Affairs Canada, and therefore the government wasn't aware that they would be crossing the Rafah border crossing. Right. right now, Global Affairs Canada says there are between 450 to 500 Canadians who are trapped in Gaza who are trying to leave. They include Canadians. Canadian citizens, but also permanent residents, their spouses, and family members. Today, about 604 nationals were able to leave through the Rafa border crossing. The majority of them included Americans, about 400 Americans, but also foreign nationals from other countries, including Chad, Croatia, Italy, and Switzerland, but no Canadians. No Canadians have been able to get on this approved list that the Gaza border crossing authority puts up every single day. And the Prime Minister was asked about why this is earlier before getting into question period. Let's take a listen. We continue to work extremely hard to get all Canadians and their families out of Gaza. Uh, obviously, the Rafa crossing is an extremely complicated place right now. Uh, we're pushing on our uh, friends in Israel, on our friends in, uh, in Egypt, uh, uh, working with the Americans and others uh, to make sure that the Canadian families get on the list. Uh, we're, we're not going to stop until we get them out. So, David, Canadian officials say they're working around the clock to make sure that Canadians can get out. They have officials in Egypt who are waiting to receive Canadians, but no word yet on when Canadians will be able to leave. Okay, so is there hope? I know this gets, uh, there's a lot of factors at play here, and a lot of it is beyond Canada's control, but is there hope that Canadians can be on the list tomorrow? What, what do we know? Where are we? The latest, from what we understand from sources, is that Canadians are not expected to leave Gaza tomorrow. Officials are hopeful that Canadians will be able to get on this approved list in the coming days. And part of the problem here, David, is that this isn't up to Canada. It's up to Israel and Egypt. The Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, has been in touch with her counterparts in both those countries, and also Qatar, because they have uh, connections with Hamas. They're communicating with Hamas, and Qatar also has a role to play here. Mm. So the Canadian government is pressing 
pressing for Canadians to be able to leave. And, uh, you know, so far they haven't been able to. And part of the reason that it has been explained by Canadian officials is that Canada has a quite a large contingencies, uh, a contingency of Canadians trapped in Gaza, so more than 450 people. Right. So they mentioned that this is part of the, re- the, the issue, uh, but so far no word yet, no timeline. And of course that is frustrating for the Canadians who are waiting for their family members to leave Gaza and for the Canadians who are trapped in Gaza right now. Okay, Olivia, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Olivia Stefanovich. Now, we have been trying to get the Canadian government on the show all week for an interview about all of this, trying to speak with anybody about the Canadians trapped in Gaza, but to date, neither the Minister of Foreign Affairs nor Parliamentary Secretaries have been made available. We're hoping to change that tomorrow, if we can. All right, still with this story, in Jerusalem, more than 3,000 red balloons filled the auditorium of the International Convention Center today. This as part of an international awareness campaign on behalf of Israeli hostages held captive by Hamas. The balloons were tied to seats, over 200 of which had placards bearing the names and faces of those believed to be held hostage. All this while U.S. President Joe Biden called yet again for a humanitarian pause on Wednesday. The U.S. says a pause would allow time to get hostages out. We're really not just talking about like one pause. What we're trying to do is explore the idea of as many pauses that might be necessary to continue to get aid out and to continue to work to get people out safely, including hostages. The president already worked on one such pause when we were able to get those two Americans out. And that's that's what we're kind of looking at. And just to remind, when we're talking about humanitarian pause, what we're talking about are temporary, localized pauses in the fighting to meet a certain goal or goals. Robert Mardini is the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, and he joins me now. Mr. Mardini, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with an update on the hostage situation, if I could, as your organization is playing a role in those negotiations. President Biden has repeated a call for a humanitarian pause to help get hostages out of Gaza. Do you have any sense as whether a humanitarian pause would be helpful in the negotiations to release people? Absolutely. Uh, By any means, a humanitarian pause first will provide respite uh, for the civilian population. Civilians in the Gaza Strip today uh, are caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, uh, They are uh, really running out of options when it comes to getting uh, access to basic services. So a humanitarian pause makes sense first for the people, second for the humanitarians, such as uh, my colleagues on the ground, the volunteers of the Palestine Red Crescent Society who need uh, some pauses in order to be able to carry out life-saving operations on the ground, supporting hospitals, uh, providing surgical equipment uh, uh, to hospitals, uh, working uh, hand-in-hand with the Palestinian surgeons and nurses uh, to save lives, and of course providing uh, basic uh, support to water uh, supply schemes uh, in order to ensure uh, a fluid uh, supply of drinking water to the but, but on the negotiations to release the hostages themselves, I've seen some reports that you know Hamas officials suggesting if there was some sort of a ceasefire or a temporary stop, it might facilitate the release of, say, women and children or, or foreign nationals uh, who are being held hostage. Do you have any sense of whether that could actually improve the hostage release conversations? It could certainly facilitate, uh, but let me be uh, clear and upfront. 
uh, and we have been extremely clear about it, uh, uh, hostages should be released unconditionally, mm -hmm. uh, especially the civilian ones, uh, because uh, this is what uh, uh, is expected under international humanitarian law. Uh, our, our colleagues uh, uh, have been uh, very clear from the beginning, uh, offering uh, services to visit uh, hostages, to check on their health, uh, to provide medicines if they need so, or to provide uh, the possibility to exchange messages uh, between hostages and their families. Mm -hmm. And of course, our colleagues uh, have stood ready uh, since the beginning to facilitate any, um, any uh, release of uh, hostages, provided there is a negotiated agreement by the parties uh, to do this. We, we've seen reports, though, there was a, there was a uh, back-to-back days, uh, an Israeli strike at the Jabalia refugee camp. Hamas is claiming that this killed seven of the hostages. Do we have any way of knowing how many hostages are alive, how many hostages are dead, or what condition they're in? I, I know you haven't been able to see them, but do you have any hard information on their status? Well, we, we, we didn't have the possibility to visit, so we don't have any uh, information about that. Uh, we uh, are in conversations with Hamas, uh, pressing uh, them, of course, to uh, take every precaution and treating uh, hostages uh, in humane conditions, uh, hoping also that we will be able to visit to, uh, to check ourselves on their health uh, and, uh, and also facilitate any, any exchange. But let me maybe uh, say a few words, because you mentioned Al Jabaliya. Mm -hmm. uh, camp and this is uh, one of the largest refugee camps uh, uh, where people are uh, have been living in desperate conditions even before this uh, round of escalation started and of course uh, uh, the images we've seen uh, from Jabalia camp uh, uh, are distressing uh, seeing wounded children being extracted from uh, under the rubble is beyond heartbreaking as is in certainly uh, intolerable uh, for any humanitarian organization uh, um, uh, to see that. Uh, uh, and this uh, is really why uh, the rules of war, the Geneva Conventions, international humanitarian law should be respected by all parties to this conflict uh, to alleviate the suffering and to reduce uh, the suffering caused by this uh, I, conflict. I, I think it's pretty clear none of that was respected on October 7th with the way Hamas conducted the, the slaughter of, of Israeli civilians uh, in the kibbutzes and various various towns in, in Israel. What is your assessment of how Israel is conducting its offensive on Gaza? We've had a lot of aid groups on the show that say the shelling amounts to indiscriminate fire, which they say could be a war crime. The siege, they say, is collective punishment, which they say could amount to a war crime. And the denial of fuel and water and these things, people argue, is a war crime. The ICRC or the keeper uh, of the Geneva Conventions, how do you assess what's happening there? Well, for us, and the ICRC has been very clear and unambiguous about uh, the event, the tragic event of the 7th of October. And for us, uh, every loss of civilian life is one too many and uh, should be uh, avoided in armed conflict. Uh, um, uh, and this is why uh, we are... Uh, repeatedly uh, calling and uh, reminding parties to the conflict of their obligations under international humanitarian law, that uh, uh, they have the obligation to take every precautions, every feasible measure to protect civilians, to prevent uh, 
further uh, loss of civilian lives and uh, uh, to ensure that there is a distinction when military operations are carried out between military targets and civilians and civilian in infrastructure uh, and that sky is not the limit when, when it comes to using force in armed conflict and this is the principle of proportionality. But, but do you believe that principle of proportionality is being applied and followed here? Israel says it, it takes precaution to minimize uh, the d civilian deaths but then it also says as Hamas uses civilians as human shields and embeds its military commanders inside civilian operations like the refugee camp, which they used to justify the strike the other day. I mean, do you think proportionality is being applied here? Well, I will not reveal any uh, of the content of our confidential dialogue with parties to the conflict, but it is clear that uh, international humanitarian law uh, prohibits the use of uh, civilians as human shield, uh, mm -hmm. prohibits the use of civilian infrastructure uh, in conducting uh, military uh, operations. This is absolutely clear. Uh, so whatever uh, we are able to uh, see firsthand, we will raise bilaterally and confidentially with parties to the conflict to ensure that uh, uh, they take, they try harder to protect civilians. I mean, today when we look at the human cost uh, of this conflict, uh, uh, it, uh, it is not acceptable. It's simply not good enough. And parties to the conflict must, uh, must try harder uh, to, preverse, to preserve a space for humanity in war. There's one issue I, I wanted to touch on um, before we let you go, and this is the Al-Shifa Hospital in, in northern Gaza, the largest hospital inside the area, and one that the IDF has told uh, the Palestinians to evacuate, get out of there. And doctors we've had on the show repeatedly say, there's people on ventilators we can't move, there are people, in, there are babies in incubators we can't move. The Jabalia attacks have sent more people there. We sp had a spokesperson for the IDF on the show who said, we've given them weeks of notice. That is enough time for them to move the people. I know it would be her, but you can do it. They also, last week, Israel released what they consider an intelligence assessment, saying Hamas is using this hospital as a command and control center. Does that justify making al-Shifa a military target? Because it seems as though Israel is building a case for this, or at least laying out the possibility for it. Well, hospitals are sanctuaries uh, that should be protected uh, at all times in armed conflict. Uh, no uh, patient, uh, no injured person, no baby, uh, no elderly person uh, taking uh, medical care in hospitals should die in a hospital bed. No doctor, no nurse uh, should be killed in the line of duty. This is absolutely uh, clear. Uh, at the same time, it is prohibited to use hospitals as uh, areas to launch uh, attacks. Right. This is also extremely uh, clear. The problem in this case, uh, in Shifa and other hospitals in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, is first, indeed, you cannot unplug um, uh, an incubator having an infant in it or uh, the oxygen uh, from an elderly getting uh, oxygen or, uh, you know, people from ICU that who are severely injured because they will die. So this is this is unacceptable. Uh, but uh, then, today, there are no plan B. There is no hospital on standby right. uh, in the Gaza Strip, even to transfer uh, in a swift way any patients uh, from this hospital to another hospital. So uh, 
there are no other options. So uh, Al-Shifa Hospital and other hospitals are sanctuaries that should be protected. So how do we reconcile that, uh, just as a final point? If Israel is saying Hamas is in there, it's command and control, there's tunnels underneath it, just like there were in the Jabalia refugee camp. But the situation with the patients is, as you say, right? It is overcrowded and there's no options. How do we reconcile that under the laws of war and humanitarian law and just basic humanity in terms of what could happen with a place like Al-Shifa? Well, basic humanity should always advocate to save lives in the worst of circumstances. So as a humanitarian, I can only tell you that mm -hmm. pending viable alternatives uh, that can ensure that no life is lost, uh, this hospital should stay and should be protected and should remain a sanctuary. That's my position. Do you think we'll see the humanitarian pauses or the ceasefire that the aid groups are, are looking for, given the political context in Israel and sort of the ferocity of the attack we're seeing right now? Or do you think you have to make the best you can with the situation as it is? I mean, humanitarian pauses or not, parties to the conflict are bound uh, by respecting the rules of four. This is one. Mm -hmm. Second, I'm an optimistic person and I hope that there will be humanitarian pauses because humanitarian pauses will allow us to save more lives and to carry out uh, our work uh, for the Palestine Red Crescent to also uh, do their work. So we, we will continue to advocate for regular, realistic humanitarian poses uh, that are in the best interest of everyone because some space for humanity should prevail uh, even in the darkest moments of humanity. Robert Mardini, the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Around two weeks ago on this program, we spoke with Hala Al-Shayer, an Ottawa woman who said she's lost numerous family members in Gaza. It was on October 16th, just days after Israel ordered people in northern Gaza to evacuate. And at that time, Hala told us she'd lost 45 members of her extended family. She also told us about her two-year-old relative, Talin. And this is a video of Talin's birthday party taken in September. She was killed one month later, along with her one-year-old sister, Asil, as well as her mother and father. Hala Al-Shayer, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back again. Thank you for having me. We had a very difficult conversation uh, when we first met, and, and I know we're going to have another one uh, today. But before we get into that, I just want to know how you're doing. Uh, this, this has been an awful time for you and your family. How are you holding up? Um... We're really struggling mentally, physically. Nobody's eating, nobody's sleeping. Um, we're just thinking about everything that's happening in the world. We're not able to comprehend how it's still going on and how it's still happening. Um, we're doing our best to be as supportive as possible from where we are, but our hands are tied and there's only so much that we can do, but we want to make sure that we are persevering and we're not stopping and that we're, we're being heard and that we're being vocal and that we're being a voice for them, um, for our family in Gaza. So, When we last spoke, um, there's no delicate way to ask this, so I'm, I'm just going to ask it. When we last spoke, you'd lost 45 members of your extended family and this war continues to take a toll. Where are things right now? So we're at um, 86, um, 86 uh, that were killed and uh, 20 injured. Um, we're looking about 17 of them are kids and 11 are women. Right. Um, 
our families are struggling. Uh, some say it's harder for those who have survived because the ones that are that were were killed and they're gone. Um, at least I hope they're resting in peace. Um, they're they're in their land. Um, but the ones that are still there, that are still surviving, and and that are watching everything, it's it's like a part of us died too. It, a part of me definitely died throughout this war. Um, I'm not the same person that I was before all of this started. Um, some change, maybe you can say, is good. I, I'm I'm definitely more vocal about what's happening, the the genocide, the occupation. But at the same time, I. I'm really disappointed in myself that it took 86 of my family members for me to to do this. So guilty, very guilty. That's that's what we're feeling. That's how I'm feeling. When you were on last, we talked about a two-year-old cousin, and we showed her picture. We've got more. It's important for these not just to be numbers. So so let's start with Khalil. I've got pictures like this of my kids on my phone. So, um, Khalil is uh, four and a half. Um, this picture was taken of him in 2021. Um, his parents had uh, a hard time conceiving a child, and once they had him, they had to bury him only a few years later. And, and it's just, I, I, I don't even know what you can say to a parent that had to bury their child. What, what do you say? What, what do you say when it's not a death that it's ex that was expected? Like they're just they're just waiting. Like they're having their children. They're like, okay, well, I might lose this one soon, or maybe their brother, maybe their sister. What do you how What do you say in this case? There's also uh, Mahmoud, who was ten. He's uh, roughly the same age as, as my oldest boy. What can you tell us about his story? Mahmoud's parents are still alive. Um, they're mourning their son. I, I watched them bury him as well. So that when I when I saw his picture, I I couldn't. I it really 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 hurt me. It really broke me. I don't know. Um, he's ten. My my younger brother's twelve. He's ten. Yeah. And it doesn't end there. I I mean, there's pictures here of. Uh, Ahmed and Sidra, uh, am I saying yeah, that right? They're, they're, and Sidra, their yeah. whole family. Is their there. whole family, so um, they're, they're siblings. Um, it was an airstrike on their house. Their, their mom, their dad, their two older sisters, their brother, um, that whole family just wiped out. You, you still have a lot of family there, because it's your mom and dad, right? Your whole yeah, extended is, family yeah. is there, and, and they're in Gaza. How, how, is, how are the, those who remain, how are they doing right now when we last spoke they were struggling with food and water and electricity i don't think things have gotten any better uh, mm. what is their situation what are you hearing from them it hasn't um got better at all um my dad's younger brother told him that if they don't kill us with an airstrike they're gonna starve us and we're gonna die of hunger that's the situation right now in gaza the people who are surviving 
are barely surviving. They're barely making it through. There's no water. They cut the communication. Um, there's no food. Even if you want to use the bathroom, there's nothing to you. Like there's, it's unsanitary. It's unhealthy. Um, if they're not going to kill them with airstrikes, they're going to kill them because of health issues, because of all the diseases that are going to go around. There's just so much more to it than just like this. The siege on Gaza is so much bigger than just airstrikes. It is breaking down their spirit. But they remain so strong, and they're like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna push through it. We're gonna share, even if we have like just bread from a bakery, we're gonna share it with 20 families. We're gonna, we're gonna sit. We're gonna eat all together. We don't have anyone except each other. They are cut off from the world. They were cut off from us for, for at least I think it was about um, those. That was such a hard day. About 36 um, hours. Yeah, that I can't explain to you the fear and the terror that I felt in my heart, not knowing what I was going to get when I opened my phone when they had communication restored. I had no idea what to expect. I did not know. I, I was thinking of the worst possible case scenarios. If we're at 86, I was like, what is it going to be after? What, what am I going to see after? And the fear that I felt, and I was here in the comfort of my own home. I was, right. I was in, in my room and I was just worrying and overthinking. How did they feel not being able to communicate what they're going through? I can't even explain what us as Palestinian families went through in those 36 hours as people who are outside of Gaza. There's been some movement in the last little while of people who have dual citizenship or have foreign passports being allowed to leave. It's not going fast and there's a lot of confusion around it. You're a Canadian. If you were there, you would have a path out conceivably through this. In your larger extended family, do any of them have passports for other countries or dual citizenship that might be a way for so them to get to safety? My mom's twin brother is actually there. He's a Palestinian Canadian. Right. Um, every day, every single day, we are asking. We're like, "What's the update? What's the update?" One of the emails that they received actually was, "If you're able to get to the airport in Tel Aviv, okay, go, and then we'll get you guys out." Yeah. Well, that's, that's a mass email, and I appreciate the sensitivity around it, but yes, but as, that's a As somebody yeah, stuck know, in under siege and you're not able to yep. get in or out, we're not even able to get food in, yep. in my opinion, very insensitive to the people in Gaza. At least these are your citizens as well. Yeah. But do you have any idea? Like, we are, we are trying to get answers and clarity from the government of Canada because, you know, some Americans got out today. 400 Americans have been approved to leave. We've seen people from a bunch of other countries. We haven't seen any Canadians beyond one Canadian who reportedly got out as part of a contingent of aid workers that was allowed to leave, but not as part of the Canadian nationals mm -hmm. being allowed to leave. Do you have any sense of when, if, and how many of your family might be able to, to get out of there um, and get to safety? We heard that by the end of the week, so today's Thursday, we're hoping to hear something by Friday. I asked um, his daughter this morning, I was like, have you heard anything? Our group chat is just, have you heard anything? No. Have you heard anything? No. Um, we're, we're trying, we're sending emails, we're calling the MP offices, we're reaching out, we're, we're expressing our fear, our anger, we're telling them like, okay, mm. please, like this is, this is something that we need, but... There's, and, and I can understand that it, it's a little bit, that it is challenging to do that. Sure. But at the same time, it's been over, like it's been a long time since this war started. Hala, uh, thank you um, for, for speaking with us again. And I know you say you feel guilt. I see strength. So thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Senator Percy Down is calling for a new liberal leader to replace Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In an opinion piece for the Hill Times, Down writes, the prudent course of action is for another liberal leader to rise from the impressive liberal caucus and safeguard those policies he was actually able to accomplish. Down, who was chief of staff to former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, went on to say that the liberals' re-election hopes rely on a new leader who is able to bring the party back to the center of the political spectrum. For more on this, I'm joined now by Senator Percy Down, who we've reached by telephone. Uh, Senator, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start with this op-ed. You've published the comments you made to the Hill Times saying it's time for the prime minister to go. Is this strictly your opinion, or are you speaking for a larger group that may be pushing for a leadership change in the Liberal Party? Well, what I'm really saying is not so much the prime minister should go. I think the party should have a discussion over the next 16 or 17 weeks. And I say by March, we still have lots of time. If the prime minister decides he wants to lead the party in the next election, then it might be helpful to outline some of the initiatives he intends to address to address the concerns that members of the party are feeling. Or if not, if he decides to go, uh, then we're on a new course. But Certainly the Prime Minister has earned the right to make his own decision. He took the party from third place to first place, won the election. He's recruited some outstanding candidates for the Liberal caucus. So there's a very big talent pool there for his succession planning. And uh, I think we just should have a discussion about it. You are a former chief of staff to former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. You know how these leadership conversations can go in the Liberal Party, going going back to the Paul Martin uh, Chrétien rivalry years. I mean, why do you? What, how helpful do you think this conversation could be for your party right now? Why do you think it should start at this moment? Well, I, I think uh, if you read the op-ed, and I'm sure you did, uh, you would not. There would be nothing in that that would surprise you. You would have heard it from Liberal MPs privately over the last number of weeks and months. So it's a discussion going on. It's just easier for me to do it than for people who have to have the nomination papers signed by the leader of the party. So is that why you did this, uh, Senator? Because others were talking about it but wouldn't go public with it? You've done this to sort of start the conversation on their behalf? Yeah, and as I said, you know, it's a conversation in a healthy political party, which the Liberal Party is. We have, we have lots of time over the next 16, 17 weeks uh, and I say that time frame, in case the decision is to go in a different direction, uh, there would be time for leadership. But the prime minister has time to uh, tell the party how he's going to address some of the concerns and uh, where we are going forward. Now, if the prime minister decides to run, if Justin Trudeau is the leader of the Liberal Party, we're all behind him in the election. That may be the final decision, uh, but there may be another decision. But, but I, I wonder, look, I, I've heard various Liberal MPs grumbling about this Prime Minister and this PMO, but I've never gotten the sense it's risen to the point of, of, a, of a concerted effort uh, to, to try to force uh, a decision on Justin Trudeau. What is your sense? Uh, how widely held do you think this view is inside the Liberal Party? Well, you should ask some of the MPs. You know, at their, at their retreat a few weeks ago, uh, there was concern expressed, and it was uh, expressed directly to the Prime Minister, is my understanding. I've heard from a number of MPs about that. And as I said to you earlier, the comments in the op-ed are not new to you. You would have heard them because you speak to MPs on a regular basis as part of your job. I, I wonder, though, you saw, I, I don't know if you saw what happened today, uh, Senator, but the Conservatives have seized on your words and are using it to hammer Justin Trudeau. Uh, do you think this could have an unintended consequence in terms of harming your party. 
No, I don't think so, because the view within the Liberal Party is that Pierre can be defeated, uh, and we just have to decide in the best course of action to do that. Uh, it's a very concerning time for progressives, not only in the Liberal Party, but across Canada, with the program that the Conservatives would introduce. Uh, everybody's trying to avoid them uh, forming the government, and we need a healthy discussion about that in the Liberal Party over the next few months. People see something like this, Senator, and they say, oh, he's doing this because he wants this person to be the next leader and this person to be the Prime Minister. Are you working with any potential leadership candidates, or is this an independent move by you? No, I'm uh, not working with anyone, and I likely won't support anyone. I think uh, other people in the party can uh, participate, but I've had my day on that area. So if not Justin Trudeau to lead the Liberals into the next election, Senator, who, who do you think would be a good candidate? Who do you think would be a good list of candidates to well, run for that job? Well, I mentioned some of them op-ed. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this interview, he's done an outstanding job, uh, Justin has, in recruiting Canadians to run for Parliament. Very difficult in this environment. And he is an embarrassment of riches, if you will, in, the, in his Liberal caucus. I think there's some great potential leaders there, if that's the decision he makes at the end of the day. So you, you mentioned that there is a belief within the Liberal Party that uh, Pierre, as you called him, Mr. Polyev, uh, can be beaten in the next election. If uh, between now and, say, late February, early March, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau decides to stay on and lead into the next election. What do you think happens in that election if it is Trudeau versus Polyev? Well, I think the, the Liberal Party will rally behind the leader, as we always have done, and uh, will make the case why the Liberals are the best uh, rebuttal to what the Conservatives would force in Canada. But do you think Mr. Trudeau can win that election, given uh, where things stand right now and the fact he would be seeking a fourth straight electoral win? Yeah, well, you know, the polls come and go, but uh, that's why we need to hear, I think, a more detailed plan about what he intends to do to address some of the problems in the polls, and I think that's a possibility as well. Okay, and just one final question, sir, on, on the time frame you've laid out, the next 16, 17 weeks. I know there's the historical symmetry of his father taking the walk in the snow at the end of February when he decided to leave. I, is it sort of a historical symmetry you're pointing to there, or is it just having enough runway uh, between then and when the next election is scheduled? Well, you know, you don't know how long the support from the NDP will last. So uh, this can't go on, in my opinion, until next, this time next year because then you're out of time. If, if at the end of the day we get a new leader, that's, that leader needs time. If uh, Justin decides to run again, then he needs time to address some of the problems that have been identified, and that would give him the time to do that as well. Senator Percy Down, thank you uh, for joining us today. Thanks. All right, well, the Prime Minister is playing down the Senator's op-ed calling for his possible resignation, despite that call picking up traction from across the aisle today. Alfred, he's calling on you to step down. Sorry, for Senator Down, a former li a former Percy staffer down? for Jean Chrétien. Oh, Percy, Percy oh, yeah. Down. How's he yeah. doing? Oh well, listen to this. I I uh, wish him all the best in the work that he's doing. Prime Minister, save his political bacon, Mr. Yeah. Speaker, and we know that because he's now admitted that his carbon tax is not worth the cost of oil for some people in some regions. I don't think he should resign. I think he should face his fate when comes an election. I'm looking forward to that. Also today, a rare political pairing with the NDP House leader Peter Julian saying his party will back the conservative motion calling for a carbon tax pause on all home heating fuels.
we believe that the, the panicked reaction of liberals a few days ago, it seemed to be tied to electoral chances more than anything else, to create a situation where in certain parts of the country people receive some support in a difficult winter where they're struggling to make ends meet and to keep their homes heated, and other Canadians wouldn't benefit from that. All right, just another day in Ottawa for the power panel to dig into. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. And here with me in studio in Ottawa, Stevie O'Brien, a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage and a former chief of staff to Liberal cabinet ministers. Hello, everyone. Um, Stevie, uh, let's start with you. Uh, what do you make of Percy Down saying he's doing this because there's Liberal MPs who are saying this, but they're afraid to go public with it. I heard from a few people that it was a little bit cute that the Kretchen team is promoting regicide, but that, <laughs> that aside, um, there's no denying that there's been an increasing amount of pressure. Um, it, it would be an understatement to say that the last six months have been difficult, Yeah. but I think that it would be, uh, so, so I do not think that the Prime Minister should step down. I think it would be a mistake for the party. Whether or not he can withstand the increasing pressure is, uh, is a separate question. Um, so the party has done a, a great job. One of the reasons I think it's a bad idea is the party's done a great job of tying the Liberal brand to the Trudeau brand since about 2015. Right. And so going into a leadership race is going to be a real challenge for any of the um, contenders, and then we've heard the same names sort of floating around, to extricate themselves from that brand. There may be... Right. So, so I think, um, so for, yeah. for a variety of reasons, there may, it would be a challenge, I think. Okay, so James, on that point, right, the, the, the tying the Liberal brand to the Trudeau brand was a real strength for the party in 2015 when they went from third to first. Does it have the potential to be a liability right now? I mean, it, is Senator Down onto something here? I don't know. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes I have to just throw the softballs out, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can read the d data the same way as you can. You know, clearly, you know, the, the uh, young, vibrant uh, liberal leader with the sleeves rolled up who is mm -hmm. taking on Stephen Harper's machine back in 2015, now that it's 2023, and we've gone through a lot of battle scars that Prime Minister Trudeau is clearly on the back nine of his time as Prime Minister, and whether he recognizes it or not, whether he's decided that it's over or not, in my judgment, if you look at the public opinion data, it's over. And you look at the data that came out last week that, you know, the Liberals started in 2015 with 39 percent of the vote. They're not, they had 32 percent of the vote in the last election campaign. Of the 32 percent of Canadians who voted for him, 41 percent, 41 percent think that he should not be the Liberal leader in the next campaign. Right. It's over. And the question is, you know, whether or not the voters are going to end this or whether or not he's going to do it on his own. And, and I also think strategically it's a mistake for him to say, oh, how is Percy and kind of laugh it off. And, you know, Bill Morneau was critical of him and he called him some random Liberal. I think a more wise move for him, if he does want to stand and fight and at least get through the next federal budget and put something substantive in the mirror, would be to pivot and, and just say, say, look, I understand that people can be critical of leaders in difficult times, but I plan to lead this party and lead this country. 
and, and watch me go to work and then put something in the window. And he seems to sort of laugh it off as though it's business as usual. It's not. It's, it's, very, much, uh, it's very much over, it looks like. Brad, Brad I wonder uh, what you make of the NDP move today and how it fits into this, right, that they're going to side with the Conservatives. It's a non-binding vote yeah. on, on a motion to put the pause of the carbon tax on all home heating fuels. But it is taking sides, and it's not taking sides with the Liberals. And I've heard some expressions of annoyance with the Liberals from New Democrats. I don't know if confidence in supply is falling apart, but things are getting a little bit more difficult here. Well, things are, things are difficult for the Liberals, and they have been for quite a while. And this, this home heating uh, fiasco, uh, which pits one uh, region of the country over, uh, over others, uh, is just the latest in a series of mistakes. Now, just quickly on, on Senator Downs' op-ed, and just, just for the folks at home, uh, this man should be listened to because he's, he's got a, a certain uh, following within the Liberal Party. This man also took two years as chief of staff and parlayed it into 26 years in the Senate. He's still got six years to go. He's a young man at 69. Uh, that's the way it, it used to be done uh, in Ottawa. Uh, not, not a bad. So we probably should listen to him because taking two years and parlaying it over two decades of, 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 uh, of, of a, a senator's job is, isn't too bad. But uh, Senator Downs said in his op-ed that the, one of the reasons why Trudeau is losing uh, public support to, uh, to James's point is, I think it's self-evident, and I'm certainly, uh, you know, uh, Sachi will, will speak to this, uh, isn't because of fiscal imprudence. It's because it's due to things like cost of living. It's due to the fact that he's got no agenda, that he's on his back heel, that he's not on the offense, on the things that matter to Canadians today. It's hurting domestically, and I think that this home heating fiasco is just the latest, uh, but it's also on the international stage. Certainly, uh, the, the, the troubles that he's having uh, with fights with India, uh, the, the, the fights, uh, obviously, the, 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 the war uh, in the Middle East is certainly not helping the liberal brand. We've seen uh, his caucus uh, divided over the tone and tenor that the government of Canada should be taking. So if he's going to put it together, he's going to have to do so uh, in the next coming months, or, or to James's point, uh, this thing is over. Uh, he's low in the polls, and that's when everything starts to, to crumble, both internally and uh, with, with, um, with your friends in Parliament. Just quickly on the issue of quickly, yeah. uh, Peter Julian. Uh, the NDP have a long history of supporting relief for Canadians when it comes to home heating. This goes back to Jack Layton in 2009, 2011. We, we've been trying to get the taxes off home heating for all Canadians. So it's very consistent to do so. I don't think it has anything to do with the senator's op-ed, though. Okay. No, no. It, it's just uh, it's like a one-two punch of, of issues. Oh, it's just today. another yeah, bad yeah, day yeah, for yeah, Trudeau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Shachi, uh, you know, uh, 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 James and, and Brad have said it's over. I mean, uh, what, what do you think? Where are we? Well, I mean, that one-two punch represents uh, bad news and also not very good news, and none of it represents good news for the Prime Minister. The, the concerning stuff here is not Percy Down. Uh, until this morning, I had not really thought about Percy <laughs> Down in a very, very long time. The problem is the Prime Minister's own Liberal voting base, which is split right now over whether he should stay on into the next election or whether he should go. There was a time when this Prime Minister had had approval ratings of well over 60%. Today, almost 60% of Canadians want him gone before the next election. But crucially, and James mentioned this, but he didn't mention the other side of it, 41% of past Liberal voters, 2021 Liberal voters, want him gone. 
it's not that that doesn't mean that 59% or, or the or the flip side to the coin want him to stay amongst that liberal group it's only 44% of past liberal voters these are his own people mm. who want him to stay on until the next election that's the bad news all the home heating stuff the cost of living stuff we we spend a lot of time talking about that so we know how he got here if there is any silver lining for the prime minister in this uh, it's well there's two things first of all you know he's a stubborn guy if he doubled down through SNC Lavalin and tripled down through we charity and quadrupled down through the convoy and quintupled down <laughs> through through cost of living uh, stuff like this calls for him to go publicly all that's going to do is stiffen his spine he's not somebody who who we know to kind of weakly walk away and say oh you don't want me okay um, I guess I'm gone. Bye. The other really crucial part of this is the fact that the people who are bandied about as his replacement have pretty crappy numbers themselves. When we look <laughs> at who is appealing to swing voters, who would be appealing in terms of regrowing that liberal base, who's appealing to would-be or current conservative voters? You know, Mark Carney, his net negatives, which is a, a tool we use in political polling, minus 13. Uh, and that number is uh, the best of a bad lot. It's even higher for a Anand, it's higher for Christian Freeland, it's higher for Melanie Jolie. So in the absence of somebody who appears uh, and could appear, I guess, in the next months, uh, I suppose anything right. is possible, uh, who really captures the imagination of either the center-left or the center-right, Trudeau is still the best person from a purely political point of view, which isn't saying much, but he's the best person to take on Pierre Polyev because any of his potential replacements would not fare any better. They'd likely fare worse. Well, yeah, and Stevie, I mean, things can change. I remember not that long ago, Pierre Polyev had massive negative numbers in a lot of ways in the polls. And look at where he's got the conservatives now, right? By having. But by the way, he still does, personally. Sure, but, but look, yeah. look at where the party is, right? You know, at, at this moment in time. So, Stevie, I, I mean, I what's your response to all that? I think the conversation we're having today right now is uh, whether or not Trudeau, and I think the polls are reflecting that. But the conversation we're not having is yet, and I don't think Canadians have really turned their mind to, is whether or not Polyev. Right. And what does a Polyev Canada look like? And that, that and what is at stake uh, in the next election? And what's at stake is, you know, a, a Polyev government will defund the CBC. It's going to be, uh, you know, what else is at risk? Uh, Canada child benefit, the uh, climate policy, child care, dental care. So I think once Canadians start thinking not just current government fatigue or Trudeau fatigue, but really about what do they want the future to look like, right. I think the, you're going to see the polls shift, and that's the opportunity where the Liberals ha will have to bounce back. Okay, I, I just want to check. I, I'm, I'm throwing a curveball at the, at the control room. Tyler, do we have that uh, Liberal ad clip available? I wanted to, yeah. So this is how the Liberals are, at least in the early stages, uh, of trying to change that conversation. Let's have a look at this. Of taking the page of Donald Trump's book, but what are you also talking about? What page? What page? Can you give okay. me a page? Give me the page. Fake news. Fake news. The left-wing censorship regime. Their woke censorship ideology. Have turned our once great cities into cesspools of bloodshed and crime. Has unleashed a crime wave like we have never seen. 
Okay, so, so, so James, this is a, a new ad the liberals have put on uh, their social feeds. It, it seems primarily, from what I understand, they're trying to keep the base a little bit happy because they're tired of the liberals not fighting back at Pierre Polyev. But I don't know if that's a preview of what we're going to see next year when the U.S. election cycle ramps right up. Is this the kind of thing they can do to have people asking that question, Stevie Ray's, of should we pick Polyev? I imagine it is, but I mean, going into 2000, the 19 election and the 21 elections, don't forget the negotiations over the new NAFTA had not been settled with the United right. States and with incumbent prime, uh, President Donald Trump. So the liberals didn't go there because there's a national interest that was at stake. Now that that's sort of passed and Donald Trump is back, then it's kind of fair game to go after him again, especially as a Hail Mary pass. With regard to the ad itself, I think it's pretty weak. I think it's pretty sad. You know, this is, you know, we're a G7 country. We've got war in the Middle East. We've got Ukraine being invaded by Vladimir Putin's Russia. We have a, we have a housing crisis. We have an affordability crisis. And this is the kind of, I mean, it's, it's pretty weak. Uh, and, and, you know, the, 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 the word fake news, everybody has used that at some point as kind of a pushback on things, you know, to associate Donald Trump and the ugliness and the, the vile, uh, like I'm a never Trump conservative, always have been proudly so, you know, the, the vile, corrupt nature of Donald Trump and to say that that's in any way Pierre Polyev, it's not. And to try to transpose that on him, I just think it's really weak and, and pretty sad. You know, but, but Brad, James outlines all the serious issues that are around the table, yet in Parliament this week, the country's falling apart because 3% of Canadians got a break on their home heating oil. But I just, you know, I, I, just, I just wonder if, if this attempt by the Liberals to, to reframe things that way, you know, if that is the sort of thing that can help. Because uh, I, I think maybe this government's best moment might have been during NAFTA when they seem to be in command of things. It's, yeah. it's been a struggle kind of since then. Yeah, and they, they had a broad you know, coalition that helped uh, civil society, business leaders, uh, union representatives, all kind of fighting for Team Canada. So it was a, it was a unifying uh, undertaking, and it, it probably was a high, a high watermark from, from, from a, a little while ago. But uh, as for the ad, the ad will only be effective if it's seen. Um, you know, we can debate whether... I, I actually thought it was, it was, it was pretty good. Um, I don't know what the... You know, I'm sure Donald Trump is as unpopular in Canada as he's, as he's ever been. Um, but, you know, for that to stick, first of all, it's a channel changer. It gets off, you know, the troubles that, that Trudeau himself and the Liberal government are facing. And it puts it back to... Uh, you know, it puts it on Polyev and you know, asks people to have another look at this, at this guy and what he's really like. But it has to be seen. You have to put a lot of weight behind it. You've got to start spending yeah. some of that money, whether it's on social, whether it's, you know, on the, uh, you know, NHL or, or you know, Grey Cup uh, play, CFL playoffs. You've got to put it where Canadians and the target audience's eyeballs are. You can't just, you know, hope to get some earned media out of it and then in two days uh, change it. It's got to be sustained. It's got to be uh, heavy rotation over a long period of time. Then you've got to measure to see uh, if you've moved the numbers and increase uh, Polyev's negatives. That will only help uh, the, the Senate uh, Liberal Caucus uh, and maybe trying to get them to back off uh, Trudeau calling for his resignation. Okay, I, I know your contempt for the Senate is oozing through in all of these answers. Oh, yes. You know, he did kick them all out of the caucus, and, you know, maybe that plays a role in this. Uh, but, you know, Shachi, on, on that point uh, from Brad, that this needs to be seen. I mean, that's millions of dollars you need to spend. I'm not sure they have that or are ready to spend that at this point in time, given the fundraising advantage that, that the Polyev conservatives have demonstrated. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this seems to be the only path for the Liberals, right? Because it's tough to bring Trudeau's positives up. You need to bring Polyev's positives down, right? That would be the only tactic at this point. 
It's not necessarily too late for Trudeau, but it's certainly a very, very hard hill to climb after eight years. But remember, this is the guy who's been down to 30% approval before, uh, almost 60% disapproval in the past, and managed to climb back out of it time and time again, managed to get a bit of forgiveness. We saw his approval numbers you know, starting to touch 40% uh, a, a year ago, around the time of the, the Freedom Convoy here, the convoy hearing. So, it's not impossible, like stranger things have happened, but I think something else that Canadians don't have a lot of appetite for is that super negative race to the bottom. Trudeau's negatives are terrible. Pierre Polyev's negatives are not great. Let's just remember what is first and foremost in Canadian voters' minds these days. Can they get access to primary health care? Can they balance their checkbook? Uh, can they pay for that home heating or whatever form of energy that it is they need to pay for? There's there's a lot going on and, you yep. know, uh, a, a one-off social media ad equating Polyev to Trump, you know, there's a lot of conservative voters and, and a lot of donors to the conservative party who don't hate Donald Trump for better and for worse or for worse yeah. and who would say, you know, hey, yeah, fine, that's fine. Let, let me write another check because we, we don't have a problem with that. So maybe not the best tack to take but um but you know there's so much the percy down said one thing symbols yeah, come and go and 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 that was sort of the only thing that was really quite interesting in the interview from my perspective and he's not wrong on that it isn't necessarily too late but this is increasingly looking like a government and a pm that is played out yeah i, I don't know if it would be a one-off ad like that because I, I know the liberals i speak to are counting on the u.s election cycle to maybe help them a little bit but stevie you've been out in numbers so i'll give you the last one i just say trudeau is one of the best campaigners the party has he has uh, the writing has been on the wall before with the polls, and he has repeatedly proven skeptics wrong. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has another trick up his sleeve. And I mean, given the current context, he'll need it. But <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he has it up his rolled up sleeve uh, for the campaign trail. All right, thank you so much, gang. Stevie O'Brien, Brad Levine, Shacha Curl, and James Moore. I always appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.